The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5 as we continue our series from this important epistle of St. Paul. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's holy and inspired word. Father, Once again, we ask that you would illumine our minds, our hearts. Might you pierce and convict. Might you heal and restore. Might you renew us in the likeness of the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. My wife Stacy and I dated long distance during my senior year of college, And what we would do is have her come down and visit me for long weekends or school breaks when she was uh, free to leave campus. And uh, when she would come down to Nashville, Tennessee, I would take her out to fancy restaurants for dinner. And we went dancing, not ballroom dancing. This is Nashville, uh, usually equipped with boots. And uh, we went on tour of trendy places like the Opryland Hotel. And I believe over spring break, I rented a car. I'm not sure how I rented a car being so young, but somehow they let me rent a car. And it was this hot pink colored car that we nicknamed the Easter Egg. Well, we had a lot of fun spending money we didn't have. I believe I balanced a check or two later in the spring. 
But somehow I managed to graduate and had a couple months off to be together. And then the company that hired me out of college had a training program for young recruits up in Chicago. Now, Chicago was only about four hours away from my wife, who lived in Wisconsin. And so, now that I had real money, we did the Chicago scene and went to cool restaurants. We went on a, a, a boat tour across, over uh, Lake Michigan. And uh, one, one evening, had a romantic outing to Ravinia, which is an outdoor botanical amphitheater, and it's the summer home of the Chicago Symphony. Well, needless to say, I was setting the bar pretty high. And we got engaged a few months later, and then uh, as I was coming to, the next time I was coming to see her, I brought a ring. Now, by this time, my wife had pretty high expectations. I was a Vanderbilt grad. I had a good job, and I had this track record of spending and doing uh, rather uh, expensive things. She was expecting a rock. What I gave her was more like a pebble. That was a long night. That was a, a difficult thing for a young couple just four months before our wedding day. And somehow, by God's grace, we got through that. She married me anyway. And to this day, she loves her ring. I, for one, hate that ring. I sometimes hope that she loses it and forces me to buy her a new one. In fact, I plan to train all five of my boys to work hard, save their money, and buy that girl a rock. Learn from daddy's mistakes. I believe that my wife's disappointment with me is similar to many marriages where expectations are not quite met. During the dating and courting phase, the man is focused on the woman. He gives her his time and his attention. They talk, they laugh, they do fun things together. The man during that season has tunnel vision. And like with blinders on, ignores everything else. Everything else is outside his field of vision. He's a man on hot pursuit leading up to that wedding day. And as is often too many many times the case, after the man makes his catch, he shifts his focus onto other pursuits, perhaps his career, his education, his hobbies and interests. And there are many wives who wonder, is this the same man? that used to take me out, that listened to me, that shared his dreams with me, who would surprise me and delight me. I'm convinced that in the heart of a woman is a deep longing to be pursued and to be known. Now, sometimes that desire can be inflated, can be unrealistic, but I believe, nevertheless, it's something genuine and God-given. Now, as I mentioned earlier, our plan tonight is to focus on verse 25, and we'll expect Pastor Light to pick up in the following verses in next Sunday night sermon. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up 
for her. I believe what Paul is saying here to married men is that you have a calling. That you have a first and foremost calling to pursue your wife in the likeness of Christ. When a a man takes a new job, he throws everything into that job. He wants to please his employer. He seeks recognition. He wants a promotion eventually. He's driven by performance and reviews and the opportunity for additional income. But as is all too often the case, such pursuits with work become all-consuming and leads a man to neglect his higher calling. We men, we get calluses on our hands, and we get cataracts, I believe, in our eyes that blind us, and we can't focus on the main calling that the Lord has given us. The pressures and the demands of life lead us to forget that we have an ultimate employer whom we ought to please. We have a calling from the Lord Jesus to love the bride that he's entrusted to us. Interestingly, in Old Testament Israel, there was a law that a man, when he got married, was not permitted to go to war the first year of marriage, that he might get to know his wife and love her and please her. That was wise of God through Moses in the Old Testament law, to set up the priority of marriage among the covenant people of God. Men, the the true bridegroom has entrusted you with a bride that you are called to prepare to meet her true husband one day. And yet, the siren calls of our culture deafen our ears, and we hear, well done, good and faithful employee rather than long for well-done, good and faithful servant. The risen Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, has a rebuke to offer to the church at Ephesus. In Revelation chapter 2, he first commends them, saying that they were faithful, that they performed good works, they had resisted false teachers, yet the Lord had this against them. They had forsaken their first love. Their passionate flame of following the Lord had cooled to a mere simmer. They were going through the motions in maintenance mode rather than in hot pursuit of their Lord and Master. Then Jesus says to them, Remember from where you have fallen. Repent. Do good works as you did at first. Husbands, remember how you pursued her at first. Remember what you used to do when you dropped everything to be with her, to give her your undivided attention. You took her out. You delighted to impress her, to surprise her, to make her laugh, to make her blush. You did silly and foolish things, and you didn't care what anybody thought about you, only to get her reaction. You sought out her dreams and her fears. You shared your own with her, and you imagined your lives together. 
my question tonight for the husbands is, what is the status of the flame in your marriage? Has that roaring flame dimmed? Has it cooled down to mere embers? And if that's the case, how do you fan it back into flame? How do you renew that fire? Well, to keep a fire going, you have to tend to it. You have to give it fresh fuel. You have to poke it and prod it and arrange it. You can't just neglect it. Otherwise, that fire, that campfire, goes out. Men, we are called to tend and fan into flame the passion and the calling that the Lord has given us first and foremost to pursue our wives. I came to Christ my junior year of high school, and I was on fire for the Lord. My life radically changed, and my friends, my pagan friends and my new Christian friends knew it. I was in the Word. I was in prayer. I was going to various fellowship groups on a regular basis. I was witnessing to non-believers. I just could not get enough of my newfound faith in Christ. I would say that the honeymoon phase of my new faith in Christ went on the better part of two, almost three years, well into and past my freshman year of college. And it was in my sophomore year that difficulties arose. And I began to run out of gas. My devotional life became dry, mundane, routine. I was lacking in motivation. Anything Christian became a legalistic burden. It was a matter of mere performance, and I was weighed down with guilt. Where was my zeal that I had when I was brand new in the faith? Well, thankfully, wise counselors helped me to see that I was using the wrong fuel. I was running on my own strength, my own power my own natural abilities, which were now exhausted. You know, one can only hold their breath so long underwater. Then you need to take in that oxygen tank and receive a new source of fuel. You see, for the believer, one's pride needs to suffer a new death. You must let go of that performance Mindset, And I had to learn this for myself in my midler years of college. To let go of that performance orientation and learn to cling to the perfect work of Christ alone. I gradually began to realize that the Christian life was about grace. It was about a relationship with my God and Father who pursued me. Who gave his life for me. Who loved me and adopted me, and called me as a son, invited me to join with him on a glorious journey. And that radically transformed my whole perspective. I had a new motivation. I wasn't trying to earn anything, but enjoying my God and Father, seeking him and pleasing him, and offering him to others. Many of you were moved and inspired by our visiting guest, Jerry Gutierrez, who was our keynote speaker for our missions conference a few weeks back. Jerry is one of those rare men 
who enjoys a deep and passionate love relationship with Jesus Christ. As many of you heard, he lost his wife, Ruthie, a year ago. has been mourning that loss for the past year. He will send out occasionally a tribute to his departed wife, filled with love poetry and passion and expression for the love of his life. I had the privilege eight years ago to be with him when our short-term mission team went down to Peru. And I can honestly say he was one of those men, those rare men, who so clung to the love of Christ, who so sought his God and Father in prayer, left a lasting impact in my own spiritual life and the way I pursue my wife in our marriage. Like a new job. Like the spiritual life that I just illustrated. The question remains for us, how do we proceed when the honeymoon phase is over? I think that's a challenge that every marriage faces. Our natural passion runs out. Where do you pick up? Where do you go from there? Every married couple realizes sooner or later that marriage is work. It's hard work. And yet it's a glorious kind of hard work. It requires effort effort, and intentionality and discipline. But for the Christian, we have a whole new perspective on this calling. The calling to die to self, to lay aside our own self-interest, to realize that we are called to please another, to please one who is greater, the Lord Jesus. At every wedding, the young couple is just full of passion and high hopes and everything about their affection is running with emotion and human natural human energy. And that's a good and blessed thing. But every couple must come to a point where that's not enough. It's not enough to depend upon your own natural resources. You have to learn to cling to a love that is greater than the love of a man or the love of a woman. Is Christ's love in you? That becomes the true power and the fuel to live a God-honoring marriage. I talk with men about these issues. And there are men who feel like they've blown it. Perhaps tonight you feel overwhelmed by this daunting charge to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Or perhaps you're motivated in a fresh way. I'm going to try harder now. I'm going to be better. I'm going to be the man that God wants me to be, that my wife needs me to be. Let me challenge you with this. Before you strengthen that resolve to begin again, I think you need a performance system check. You need an overhaul. You need to change the fuel that's been driving you. For many men, it's it's a performance orientation towards career and money and recognition. Many men are desperately seeking their wife's respect by providing for her, by maybe attending his husbandly duties. And these are all 
good things. But these are not the same things as pursuing a wife's heart. You know, I believe one of the problems with promise keepers, that large men's group that met in outdoor stadiums 20 years ago, was that many men, while getting converted and recommitting their lives to Christ, would come home fired up, having just been at a spiritual pep rally with a whole new resolution to be a new man, to be a new husband, to be a new father. And the weeks would go by, and the months would go by, and he would drift back into his old ways. The spiritual high wore off, leaving the man discouraged and his wife even more disillusioned. He will never change, says the wife. I believe for many of those men, they lacked not only a vital relationship, but they weren't mentored and trained to understand that the Christian life requires that we be brought to an end of ourselves. We must die. We must give up the flesh and learn to submit to God's Spirit to give us the power we need to fulfill the calling the Lord has for us. You see, the man who neglects his wife's heart has truly neglected his own. And for any man who is serious and intentional about pursuing his wife's heart, needs to first do this. Recognize that he can't. Recognize that he is weak and empty and helpless, and he needs to learn to receive the Lord. To ask the Lord to come and capture his heart, because he lacks the resources needed to capture the heart of his own wife. Men are not to despair, or to fall into self-pity, but rather to humble themselves. And if that is you tonight, let me encourage you to admit your failings. Perhaps you need to ask your wife, how have I failed you? How have I not lived up to your expectations? Some wives will tell you, and that's a good thing. It could be painful and a difficult thing to hear. Other wives may not tell you. That's a more dangerous situation. It may require more delicacy, gentleness, and determination. As you men pursue a wife in such a manner, let me encourage you to ask her with gentleness and a genuine heart and be prepared to listen, to seek to understand, to perhaps write things down. Don't argue. Don't be defensive. Or rationalize away your behavior or turn the tables on her. Seek to understand it. You may not agree with what she has to say. There could be some painful barbs in the use of her tongue. But as a man, you are called to take them. To take those barbs and lay them at the foot of the cross. And it's at the cross that we find our power with a new resolve to win the heart of a wife with faithful and persistent pursuit. Three years ago, my wife and I did this kind of inventory check exercise of our marriage, prompted by a book we were reading. And by the way, we've resolved in our marriage to read a book on marriage about every year. 
And that's been very edifying to challenge us and equip us in our own marriage. And if you're not a reader, go to a conference. Listen to sermons that allow yourself to be sharpened in this high calling we call marriage. Well, in this inventory check exercise, I asked my wife, Stacy, to write down five things that I could do to love her better. And she, in turn, gave me permission to write down five things that she could do to better respect me and grow in her submission to me. I remember reading Stacy's list. A few of them were easy. The others were not so easy. They stung because they cut to the heart of some of the difficulties we were having in our relationship. And it took, it took several dates and times together for us to understand what was going on for us to grow through it. And I can honestly say over these, these past three years, in many ways we've grown more in this short time period than the previous 12 years of our young marriage. And I believe some of the Lord's trials along the way have contributed to that effect as well. I keep that list Stacy wrote nearby. I consult it on occasion. In fact, I have it with me here tonight. Would you like to hear what she wrote? I'm enjoying the power I have over you as I dangle this uh, carrot before you. Here are some of the things that my dear wife had to say to me. Number one, pray for me. Well, that's easy. I'm a professional Christian. That's what I do. But then she says, don't fall asleep while we pray. Men, give your wife your attention. Number two, loyalty. And what she meant by loyalty was, have eyes for me and me only. Men, we need to acknowledge that we're weak. And we live in a culture that hits us and tempts us day in and day out. And our wives see it. And a wandering eye adds to the insecurity that is already there. And men, confronting the eyes of our minds and the eyes of our heart is one way to be faithful and loyal to a wife and ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, she said, listen to me and seek to understand me. Take an interest in what I have to say with undivided attention. I like number four. She says, touch me in public. Let the world know that I am treasured, that I am your prized possession, and it makes me feel feminine. And fifthly, she says, on our date nights, put creative thought into our dates. Ask me questions that engage my heart. And date nights are a practice that we have preserved for years. Maybe every six weeks or so we'll go out on dates, and now that our children can stay home by themselves, it's a wonderful and glorious thing. This is a priceless treasure. The revelation of a woman's heart who desires to be pursued. You see, men, a woman wants to be wanted. She desires to be desirable. She needs to be needed in your life. Inside a mature woman is a little girl 
who wants to be loved and cared for. She wants your protection. She seeks your affection. She longs for you to pursue her and know her. She is hardwired by God to give herself to another, one whom she can trust and respect, one who will deal patiently with her. That is the heart of a woman that a man is called to pursue in the likeness of Christ. So men, how do we understand these glorious creatures that we call women? Well, it's been captured by statisticians that 80% of women, of wives, say that their husbands don't understand their emotional needs. That's a good place to begin. Recently, a little girl asked her father, Daddy, do you have feelings? The wise father answered, well, yes, sweetheart, I do have feelings. But but my feelings are like a box of eight crayons. Whereas you and your mother have a box of 64 crayons. And, And you have colors that I can't, I don't recognize, I can't pronounce, I can't spell them. A woman's emotional life is different from a man's. Now, there are some wives here saying that, yeah, my husband's box is missing a few of those too. A man says red, the woman says fuchsia. A man says purple, she says indigo. Then you can learn to speak that language. You spend hours in a tree stand waiting for a prize rack to walk by. You can learn to draw out the heart of your wife whose reward is greater than something you can mount on your wall. A man once told me, you can't hurt my feelings. I don't have feelings. When we do a temperament analysis, in fact, when I was in seminary, I underwent this temperament analysis, and uh, I was shocked by how I scored low, dangerously low on empathy. I was barely higher than a sociopath on the level of empathy. And I I was crushed. And I went home to my wife and and she said, yeah, that's pretty much you. (laughs) It's amazing how God uses incidents like that and the trials we have endured ever since to help me develop empathy, to enter into my wife's own hurting world to learn to hurt for her, to learn to identify with other people in their hurt, their brokenness, and their needs. Men, for for many of us, learning to pursue our wives is like going back to school. And it's like you're in third grade trying to learn calculus. And it's going to take time and patience and diligence and sometimes this, 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 this call to, to learn and grow and understand, sometimes it, it's frustrated by much damage. Many men are damaged goods with abuse and neglect in their background, with poor models of how to relate, relationally engage with anybody in a healthy way. Or sometimes a man enters into a marriage not knowing that this woman has suffered abuse in her past. And he feels overwhelmed and helpless how to love her and care for her. 
but it can be learned. It takes much work. It takes learning. It takes understanding. And you see, it's difficult because men like to fix things, right? We like to fix it. We have a Messiah complex. We want to be the hero. I want to be the savior. I want to be the man. But when it comes to relational dynamics and brokenness and damage, you can't fix that. But there is one who can. And part of a man's calling is learning to come alongside his wife and pursue her and appropriate the grace of God through Christ who is using you to heal this woman. For many men, it's a scary thing to enter into a wife's pain, to get past her defenses. And the Lord Jesus guiding your hand to get past those defenses, to get to her heart, and make it a massage and enable the healing that that hurting heart needs. A skilled heart surgeon requires many, many years of training and being trained by a master surgeon. And I understand that a young medical student who's learning the skill of heart surgery just does one step at a time and learning just one cut over and over and over again and then moving on to the next step. And he has to be trained and it takes hard work and diligence and patience. But the payoff is grand of being able to provide healing for human hearts. So I believe husbands are called to pursue their wives' hearts in the likeness of Christ. Now let me offer some advice for the wives. First of all, to young women. Marry a man that loves Jesus more than he loves you. Because if he loves Jesus, he will love you well. Now check your expectations. Are they godly expectations or are they worldly expectations about your marriage? You know, it's a good desire for a woman to want to be pursued by a husband. But how do you ladies express them? Does it come across in a demanding, nagging spirit? You know, there are many good men, good honorable men, who are willing to die for their wives, to give up their right arm for their wives. But he needs help. He needs help to know how to engage with his wife in a level that is meaningful to her. We encourage wives with their husbands to pursue ministry and not manipulation. I encourage wives to appreciate the ways he does love you. And as you appreciate the ways that he loves you, seek by faith in Christ, to follow what we covered last week from verses 22 to 24, to render your submission and respect to this man. You know, I can't guarantee that your husband will respond, that he will respond to love you in the way that you desire to be loved. However, offering submission to an unloving husband is not offered in vain. Because ultimately, it's an offering to the Lord Jesus Christ, your true husband. It is pleasing to our God and Father, who is growing you into the likeness of Christ. And wives, I offer this as well, that even the best of husbands will never love you 
the way you desire to be loved. He will never be able to fully satisfy your heart. The heart, you see, is unquenchable. There's only one lover. There is only one husband who can satisfy the deepest longings of your own heart. When Jesus approached the Samaritan woman at the well, these two characters were worlds apart. He was a man, she was a woman. He was a Jew, she was a Samaritan. He was a respectable teacher. She was a woman of disrepute and dishonor. And Jesus overcame all of those barriers. He requested from her water. He peppered her with questions. He challenged her thinking. He confronts her. And this woman who had only known abuse and neglect found a rare man engaging her and pursuing her heart. Jesus knew how to pursue a woman. And Jesus can guide a man who trusts him how to pursue. Ladies, sympathize with your husband. He has a high and difficult calling. Encourage him. Pray for him. Recognizing that he is called to love a very flawed and imperfect woman in the likeness of Christ. There are many other flawed women that Jesus pursued. Mary Magdalene, the woman at the well I just mentioned, the woman caught in adultery, the scandalous woman who came to him at a crowded dinner setting to offer perfume at his feet. Women loved him. They were drawn to him. I believe that that women were drawn to Jesus' boldness the way he would confront evil and injustice, the way he would speak the truth, his manner of tenderness with children, and his compassion and empathy towards those who were hurting and afflicted with diseases and demons. I sometimes wonder if Jesus had to resist the unwanted advances of women in that day. I believe it was the resolve of the Lord Jesus not to marry in this life because he was saving himself for another. Jesus was sent on a rescue mission to pursue a bride, to ransom a a people who were adulterous, who were idolatrous, who were stuck in the muck and the mire of this world. Jesus came on a rescue mission to deliver a prostitute like Salmon, who married Rahab, like Boaz, their son, who married Ruth, bringing in the foreigner, bringing in the unclean to wash and purify her and make her a glorious thing of beauty. That's where this text is going. This text really isn't about romance. It's not about dating and courtship. It's about the the hard work of sanctification, of pursuing a heart and yielding that heart, giving that heart over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor Light has the privilege to pick up from there next week. Men, I encourage you to learn from the Lord Jesus. And it begins by you first experiencing 
his love and pursuit of you. To recognize that your masculinity is feminine compared to the great masculinity of God. He is a God who pursues you, who finds you out, who draws you out, who wants to heal and restore you. He is the true lover of your soul, the pursuer of hearts, the true husband who calls us his bride to be wed to him, to be sanctified, to be made beautiful. Jesus, the questioner, the listener, the comforter, the confronter, the one who brings laughter out of sorrow and offers compassion to the hurting. Jesus will take his bride and make her beautiful and young again to present her before himself without spot, without wrinkle, without any other blemish. Men, let God pursue you to capture your heart, to enrapture your soul and ascend you on a new mission to love your wife and to live for his glory. I do hope someday to buy my wife a new wedding ring. And yet, I'm, the current one that she has is a humble reminder of my weakness and my limitations. It reminds me that I cannot make up for what is lacking in me. And yet Christ can. And that wedding ring should be a reminder to us that that wife is pledged to another. I have the privilege of being Stacy's husband for this life. But the day is coming when she will meet her true husband. And I will be called to account for how I have handled his bride. And he will give her a crown, a set of jewels that I could never afford. And it's his love working through me and others that will ultimately perfect her where I have fallen short. I have a beautiful wife. And yet I look forward to the day when I will see her glory self perfected and spotless and unblemished before the Lord of glory, transformed in new radiance. That will be a wondrous sight. I encourage you men to gain a vision for what Christ is doing in you and through you to prepare your wife for that great and glorious day. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you have loved us and pursued us. You have sought us and you are transforming us into your likeness. And we thank you for this vision, for this word of instruction. I pray that we as men would apply it to our hearts and would be Christ-like in the way we love and pursue our wives, even as Christ loved the church. In whose name we do pray. Amen.